Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring in a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we speak with Elizabeth Colbert, who is a journalist of politics and the environment. She's been at The New Yorker for more than 20 years and is the author of three books in this area, Field Notes from a Catastrophe on Climate Change, The Sixth Extinction Concerning Biodiversity, and most recently, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. I've always been very impressed by Elizabeth's writing, not just in its clarity, and a certain simple brevity to her use of words, but also her ability to explore new and challenging and cutting-edge issues in environment and also technology. In particular, her most recent book, Under a White Sky, as we'll talk about in this episode, focuses on how humans are intentionally intervening in nature, often in order to protect nature, but also often in order to try to remedy the impacts from our previous interventions in nature. Our conversation uh, starts with her work on climate change, which she started about two decades ago. You know, we reflect on, you know, the developments in that time, how things have changed and how the media has covered it and the lessons learned from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed reading her books, and I, I think she does a great job of posing the difficult questions that these issues present, that we are a world-changing force, and what are we going to do about it? She doesn't give us answers, she doesn't tell us what to think, she just sort of finds these fantastic examples that illustrate just what's happening in the world, and what people are doing. And leaves it up to the reader to decide what to think about it. Yeah, I thought our conversation was really fantastic. And hopefully it'll get you thinking too. The issues of these big scale proposed technologies like solar geoengineering and using gene drives and gene editing to conserve biodiversity are polarizing. There's typically very extreme opinions among those most concerned about environmental issues of resistance or a certain type of reluctant but clear support for exploring these options. And when I read her work, I come away knowing more about the technologies and the proposals and the situations, but also better understanding both perspectives in a way that I really think is not clouded by her own perspective. I think she does a good job of putting both sides of the argument and having sympathy for both sides. And I feel that maybe she's a little on the fence herself. She recognizes, you know, there are limits to what we can achieve. We're causing real serious damage and we really need to change the way we live. But an approach that just denies new technologies, new opportunities, these new radical ideas has got its limits too and has got its problems. And I think she's very aware of those. And so I think she's a great guide to this world we're coming into or we're we're becoming more aware of. Really fun conversation.
Welcome to Challenging Climate, Elizabeth Colbert. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with a little bit of your background. Can you tell us how you ended up writing about science and environment? Uh, well, it's a long story, longer than maybe uh, you're interested in. Um, I am a classic humanities student. I studied literature in college. I pretty quickly went to work at the New York Times, was a political reporter for many years, several years, went to the New Yorker to write a political column, in fact, uh, right as the web was really taking over the news cycle and sort of started to think about writing about something different, something where the news wasn't churning so fast and started to think about climate change, actually, which at that time in the early 2000s was still, you know, this debated concept and ended up writing a series, a three-part series for The New Yorker on climate change in 2004, I guess, 2005. And as your listeners probably know already, once you sort of get on the climate change, once you start thinking about climate change, it's hard to think about anything else. So that's really how this happened, this sort of circuitous journey. You've been writing on climate for about two decades then. So I thought it'd be quite nice to take a bit of a long view on it and see how things stood when you wrote your first book, uh, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, 2006, and how they've changed over the time after. Where do things stand at that point in 2006? Uh, wh- or, and what did you set out to achieve when you wrote that book? Well, I mean, it sounds terribly naive now, but you know that was a moment when you picked up pretty you know, major publication still, you still got a sort of both sides of climate change. You always had the same, one side was represented by a lot of people, you know, climate change is a big problem, that side. And the other side was always, you know, a few handful of people who were willing to say anything wasn't a big problem or try to punch holes in the latest scientific study or whatever. But you could still read that kind of both sidesism coverage. And I mean, really, the way the first story I did was uh, on climate change. It wasn't really on climate change. I went to the top of the Greenland ice sheet with a bunch of Danes who were drilling an ice core, the North Grip core, in 2000, early back in 2001. And one of the things that one of the scientists told me really stuck with me. He said, you know, on climate change, the physics are impeccable. And that that actually really got me going on, on all this. That's a little bit of a side story. But anyway... And so I had this idea that I was going to sort of explain that the physics were just fundamental physics, which we'd understood for quite a long time. And there was no sort of, there wasn't a lot of wiggle room here. You could debate, you know, sort of the, what you wanted to do about it. And yes, there was a certain amount of uncertainty here as to climate sensitivity, but I was going to lay it all out for everyone. And that was going to be the end of the debate. Well, you know, I was, as I say, very naive about that. Yeah, things didn't quite work out that way, did they? No, they really haven't, yeah. You revisited the book in 2014, and that was a little before the Paris Agreement. So how had things changed in the in the eight years since? I do think that, you know, there are many changes. You know, I think in journalism, I think there have been a lot of changes. I think you don't you don't see both sidesism anymore. I can't tell you exactly when that faded, but I think a lot of the major news organizations have have really woken up and taken on the challenge of covering climate change. I think that a lot of the business world, 
A lot of it is alert to the risks of climate change in ways that they were not necessarily back in 2014. But, you know, all that being said, as I certainly don't need to tell the two of you, you know, all that matters is emissions and they have not, you know, they've only gone in the wrong direction since 2014. So, you know, you can choose to tell the story of the last 10, 20, 30 years, you know, however you want, but you do have to acknowledge that from the perspective of the atmosphere, those stories don't make any difference. There's only one thing that, you know, makes a difference. I guess there's been some big changes on, on the negative side, or depending where you're from, the positive side, the, you know, the development of the tar sands and fracking made Amer- you know, North America independent in, in oil and gas. On the other side of the equation, we've had the renewables really blowing up in a way that I think few expected they would. The emissions have stubbornly, stubbornly gone up. Are you hopeful now about how about recent trends or does it still look uh, pretty dark? Well, I think, once again, you can sort of tell the story either way. I mean, as, as you're suggesting, there, there are two you know, huge developments in the energy markets in the U.S. I, that you can speak to. One, as you say, is fracking, which has so, so natural gas has really displaced coal over the last decade, decade and a half. That That is a big story and has helped keep U.S. emissions basically you know, flat. How's that? And the other story is that renewables, particularly solar, have really, really dropped in cost, as, as everyone knows. Really, that's to a lot of people, that signals, well, we, we could solve this problem if we, if we wanted to and in, in a cost-effective you know, sort of way. We, we just don't seem to want to. But I think that, you know, once again, I think we have to be frank and say that as long as we're not doing that, we have to ask you know, why and and how is that going to change? If you actually look at the proportion of U.S. energy that comes from fossil fuels and that comes from renewables, you find it's pretty static. And that should give us pause. I guess another much more recent event was the COVID and and the lockdowns that came with it. I mean, I, I was just looking this up before our call that, you know, at the peak of the lockdowns, global emissions were down 17% for like a, a few weeks. And they were down 6.5% on the year. For the year as a whole. But that compares to, or it's less than the 7.6% we'd need per year for the next decades to achieve a one and a half Celsius target. Does the response of the emissions to COVID give you hope or give you the opposite when thinking about the future? I think the thing that's obvious is this isn't happening. The kind of reductions that we need are not happening without major societal shifts. And COVID was an enforced major societal shift. And as you as you point out, even that was not quite enough for, you know, to meet on an annual basis that tra- trajectory. But I'm sitting here in the US and I will tell you that, you know, the political trends are not good. We have, we thought we had this one moment when we had this, you know, very evenly split Congress, but it is nominally in Democratic hands and Democratic administration. Everyone knew this was the only moment to get anything meaningful passed legislatively uh, or even in a budgetary sense. And, you know, once again, as you all know, nothing has happened. Nothing really meaningful has happened. And the hope for that is fading fast. And we have a very hostile, very hostile Supreme Court, hostile to 
regulations that might help. We have no movement in Congress, and we're probably about to get a Republican Congress. I don't want to get too much into the weeds of American politics, but if you look at that, you say, well, I, I don't see any shift here. I see, on the contrary, I see some pretty bad trend lines coming at, at us. So anyone who looks at that and says, you know, they're hopeful, I don't, I'd, I'd really like to see the evidence for that. I guess we might have hoped in the 90s, or maybe still today, that the U.S. would have led the world in emissions cuts. But I mean, as you're, as you're saying, that's, that's not been the case. But it seems that in many other countries, the UK, most of Europe, both sides of the political spectrum take this issue seriously. And, and I guess some of the trends aren't being reversed under Republicans. I mean, the efforts to restart the coal industry didn't get anywhere. I mean, is it just that America's not as relevant to this problem as we might hope? Is it just going to be decided elsewhere? Well, that would be good. <laughs> We're decided elsewhere. You know, I mean, I think it, it has a lot of, there are a lot of tangled stories here. And I honestly, you know, I have spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I can't really even give you a coherent story. I mean, the fact that the U.S. is now once again an energy exporter, there's a lot of money, you know, there's tons of money, there's tons of investment in the status quo and in energy infrastructure status quo. There's the way Americans live. Americans do live very differently from Europeans. We we live in, you know, sprawl. We don't have decent mass transit. You know, in recent years, as the grid has become somewhat cleaner due to phasing out a lot of coal, transportation has overtaken electricity production as, you know, our, our major source of emissions. And we're quite terrible at that. And, and you could even argue COVID was really bad for that because it really slammed mass transit pretty hard. Um, people stopped taking buses and subways. You know, will the rest of the world, you know, sort of show America the way? I think that one does have to be honest, too, in a way that you can even leave the U.S. out. I mean, you could argue the big question mark is China, which is now making everything for the world, right, for the whole world, for Europe, for the U.S. Will China decarbonize? Can you decarbonize those heavy industries? Will they decarbonize those heavy industries, manufacturing? Because we've really just, even you could argue to the extent that we've held emissions flat in the U.S., a lot of that has just been by shifting them to China. So I guess I would argue don't even look at the U.S., look look at China. If China can do it, then, then the world can do it. If China can't and isn't going to do it, you know, obviously very innovative, very, uh, when they want to do something, they, they, they do it in a very directed way, whereas the U.S. is just too chaotic on some level to rely on. Yeah, it's interesting. And I guess you can kind of see positive and negative sides in China, too. I mean, they're leading the world in terms of solar PV and wind power production, but at the same time, they're boosting their coal production because I guess there's the reality of a rapidly growing economy and the energy needs of it. Yeah, you, you mentioned a little bit about the role the media has played and some of the early mistakes in covering climate change. Is the media getting it right now? Well, that's that's a good question. And I mean, I guess the question would be, you know, what is right? You know, certainly I don't see nearly as much coverage. It just makes me, you know, slap my head and say, oh my God, how could you have written that? You know, I still see a lot of, you know, sort of small to medium-sized simple errors. Climate change science is, as you should know, it's not quantum physics, not quantum, you know, but it's it's not it's not uncomplicated. There are complexities to it. And capturing that for general audience, you know, I can attest after many years of trying to do it, is not that easy. So I mean, I think you can 
still blame, and you know, you get every year these tallies of how the broadcast networks, for example, how much time they've devoted to climate change. And it's it's minuscule. To that extent, simple lack of coverage, I think you can still say is a problem. But the quality of the coverage, I think in the print media, let me speak for the print media, I think has gotten a lot better. And anyone who wants to be informed can be. Now, that might be a minority, very small minority of people. One thing I worry is, as someone trying to communicate on climate change is some, some trend I've seen recently is the, the real growth in climate alarmism amongst the young. I mean, there was a study last year surveying 10,000 young people and found 56% of them thought humanity is doomed. And more than 45% said thinking about climate change affects their daily life. And I believe climate change is a real serious issue, but I worry that perhaps some of our messaging in the media has gone a little too far. You know, we've gone past denying it, but maybe are we hyping it today? I mean, I think people tend to jump immediately, as you say, to to humanity is doomed from there's going to be a lot of disruption. But I don't think that, but I do think there's going to be a lot of disruption. And I do think it's appropriate for young people to be very concerned about that. If you are hoping to live on this planet for another 60 years, let's say, (laughs) things could be pretty ugly in that time. You know, I, I wrote a book called The Sixth Extinction, And the question, you know, when are humans going extinct? That was the immediate question. I was like, well, that is actually the last thing that I would worry about. So we do tend to make this jump from bad stuff is going to happen to we're doomed. You could argue, don't look up the movie that has perhaps done more to bring climate change to public attention. I don't really know. I haven't done sort of a public opinion survey. You know, that also trafficked in doom. It's either one or the other. And the truth is probably you know, very much in between, but in between can be pretty bad when you have 8 billion people on the planet who are dependent on some pretty brittle systems. The book you mentioned, The Sixth Extinction, and much of your other writing discusses your travels around the world, where you take case studies of environmental problems, technological phenomena. That book in particular focuses on the biodiversity challenge, which trip or discovery of, of a species or the condition of a species had the biggest impact on how you think about the biodiversity challenge? Probably it was going to the Great Barrier Reef, which was an amazing experience. So one of the sort of ironies of that book was that I was writing, going to all these places, these amazing places, some sort of the most amazing places you can still go on planet Earth you know, writing about how we're we're messing them up. But the Great Barrier Reef, which is almost unimaginably fantastic. I don't care how much underwater photography you've seen. It's just an amazing place and gives you a sense of, of life and the exuberance of life that is really moving and, and beautiful and astonishing. And then, you know, the prognosis for the Great Barrier Reef in the time since I was there, I was there in I guess 2009, probably the end of 2009, has just suffered tremendously, tremendous losses, even in the last 12 or 13 years. And I don't know what's happening this summer there now. Obviously, it could be another bad summer if water temperatures are get too high. So I think that coral reefs 
are pretty good sort of stand in for what we're doing <laughs> to planet Earth. And I'd say that that really, I've grown up in the Northeast of the US. I'd never seen a reef, really an intact reef. I'd been to the Caribbean, but those reefs are pretty much wrecked already, have been wrecked for a long time. And so to see what to me looked like an intact reef, although people who have studied the reef for a long time would tell you already, I you are seeing not seeing the full amazingness of the reef. That was a very, very moving experience. I'm a quantitative person. And you said you studied the humanities and you're a writer. So I'll interpret that as meaning you're more of a word person. I personally struggle to wrap my mind around the biodiversity situation. So I can look at climate change and I get numbers. I get scenarios. I get emissions. They accumulate. There's sensitivity, which governs the relationship between cumulative emissions and warming, et cetera. And then I open up the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, the awkwardly named counterpart in a way to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change trying to make a global assessment. And biodiversity just comes across as so qualitative and heterogeneous. And sure, the report says that goals won't be met and current trajectories aren't enough. But I struggle with how do we know, how do we measure it on a global scale? Your writing is wonderful with these case studies around the world of species that are endangered and that have recovered. But how do you think about the global picture? How would you recommend someone like me think about the global picture? I mean, you know, you can say this as a humanities student speaking, but I, I think it's a little bit like the conversation that we had about climate change, you know, when I first started covering climate change in the early 2000s, I, I went out with people, very serious scientists who were saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist and I don't see it. Like, I don't see it in my own research. I don't see the signal for warming yet. Or I see it, but it could be part of the Arctic oscillation or blah, blah, blah. It's going to turn around. Scientists are very, you know, as you know, they're actually very, very conservative as opposed to being, you know, alarmist. So that conversation, like I don't have the numbers and therefore I'm not going to buy into this yet. I think that can be a very dangerous uh, situation. You know, I think one way to look at biodiversity since we have no idea how many species there are on earth, even to an order of magnitude, is to just say, okay, what are we doing to the planet in terms of conversion, land conversion? If you just look at those figures, which are gettable, they're also hard to put together, but I think we're getting much better with LIDAR, et cetera. And you just say, how much of the surface of the earth have we appropriated for ourselves uh, then you say, well, there's almost follows as A follows from B. There's a, there's a crisis here. You know, other creatures, other species need somewhere to live. And if you just took land conversion and the species area relationship, you would get to some pretty dire numbers. Now, are we ever going to be able to prove that at the point where we can? I mean, it's like people say to me, well, you know, 75% of all species haven't disappeared. So we're not in a mass extinction. I'm like, if you want to wait until 75% of the species have disappeared, okay, but I would not recommend that. Uh, Robert May, who is a very famous uh, scientist, actually of Australian, uh, but worked in, in Britain most of his life, once said that to a first approximation, all species are insects. We have to recognize that 
you know, we're very bad at keeping track of things that don't attract our interest, like insects. I think there is a growing awareness that many insect species are in trouble for reasons that, you know, people are racing to try to identify. But if you say to a first approximation, all species are insects, and then we say, well, we only know that 1%, you know, the species have gone extinct, you realize that there's just a, a disconnect between what we're looking at and what may be happening. As a quantitative person, I was drawn to the idea of, well, what are the percentage of species that have gone extinct? And as far as we know, the actual known number, it's actually relatively low. It's 1%. That feels low because these past uh, major extinctions of events uh, have been in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. But for one thing, it's about the rate per year. We might be on the beginning of a, of a steep upswing in the rate of extinction. And also, as, as you said, we don't know how many species there are. I was going to switch it to just a slightly different side of the coin and try to be a bit provocative. There's a phrase in your book that says, we have become the major driver of extinction and also probably speciation. And I want to hone in on, on speciation. There's increasing evidence that human activities are, to a modest degree, at the margin, increasing certain types of biodiversity. Not net increases, I want to be clear, but there's a type of speciation. Uh, Chris Thomas's book, Inheritors of the Earth, explores this idea. How should we think about speciation? Is it, is it relevant? Is it morally or normatively bad, good? Neither. I guess I'm going to go with, with neither. I mean, I'll just give you an example of, you know, one way that we're probably driving speciation. We have imported rodents all around the world. So every island now has rats and mice, including islands that people don't live in. They just visited and the rats or mice came off a ship. So, you know, we know that islands have a tendency, right, when a species is marooned on an island to diverge, you know, they're just reproductively isolated. And over time, you might get a new species of rat or mouse. Is that good or bad? I think most people would intuitively say, and I don't want to say that our intuitions are a good guide, but they would intuitively say, I'd rather have on that island the species of ground nesting birds that have been there than this new species of rat that we will eventually identify so I think the net loss is, you know, way higher than the net speciation. And one thing that we've sort of discovered in the process of really messing around with the world is that extinction can happen much more quickly than speciation. <laughs> you know, the rates are not commensurate, even though Darwin told us they should be and ha must have been over long periods of time. Otherwise, you know, nothing would be here. In response to the growing threat of extinction and reductions in biodiversity. Some scientists and some others are looking at novel technologies, especially biotechnologies, to try to help conserve biodiversity. There's research in adaptive breeding, uh, assisted adaptation, I think is the phrase they call it, assisted evolution, and genetically modified corals, perhaps to withstand climate change, genetically modified American chestnut trees, which were wiped out by a blight. Perhaps they can be genetically modified to withstand the blight. You mentioned invasive rodents in islands. Gene drives a sort of amplified, rapidly spreading form of genetic engineering might be able to be used to locally eradicate invasive species and even improved agriculture. Your most recent 
long essay in The New Yorker, Creating a Better Leaf, looks at genetically accelerating or assisting photosynthesis in, in agriculture. And if we can reduce the amount of land use for agriculture, which is probably the greatest source of, of humans' impact on biodiversity, that could help reduce our impact on biodiversity. And you explore some of these in more depths in Under a White Sky. How are these technological means of helping conserve biodiversity being received in the wider cons conservation community? Is there resistance, quiet support, skepticism, humor, all of the above? That's a really good question. And I wouldn't say that I have a clear answer because I am not, you know, really part of the conservation community. But I do think it's fair to say that things that would have just been considered beyond the pale, you know, even 10 years ago, are no longer considered beyond the pale because the situation is is pretty desperate for a lot of species and whole ecosystems, such as coral reefs. And I think that the problem, the practical problems, though, humans are really, really good. I mean, gene editing is crisper and gene drive are amazingly powerful technologies. They, they really are. And they do have tremendous potential for, for good and for ill. But we are dealing with, with natural systems, the scale of which is huge. And the fact that we've managed to do such a good job messing with them shows the scale of our abilities. But that was sort of 8 billion people unwittingly participating having 10 or 20 people then try to counter that with even using tools like gene editing and gene drive, the, the forces are just incommensurate, it turns out, I think, is a problem, A. And B, also, this does get to, and this gets into areas that people immediately fall asleep with, so I'm not going to go there too far. But, you know, the governance issues are extremely tough. And, you know, in that piece that I wrote about photosynthesis, sort of trying to gene edit out some of the inefficiencies of, of photosynthesis, which was, which was fascinating to me. But the technology was sort of aimed at subsistence farmers in Africa to, you know, help them. That was the ostensible sort of point of it to increase production for them. And when you think of the barriers, the social barriers to getting those crops approved in every African country and then getting them into the hands of people, by the time you've gotten it out, conditions are changing so fast. You have to breed these qualities into the local varieties. They have to keep up with climate change. I mean, the barriers along the way are really steep. But all that being said, you know, these powerful, these technologies are also extremely powerful. So how that race between a changing world and trying to change the world to accommodate these changes, to keep up with these changes, how that's going to play out, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the reason I wrote Under a White Sky is because I think that is one of the great questions of our time. So I've spent some time over recent years thinking precisely about the governance of these large-scale in intentional interventions in nature. So I, I, for one, certainly don't fall asleep. Quite the opposite when thinking about this. And in fact, your book, Under a White Sky, which I found to be not only excellent, but it helped solidify some thinking I had, I had had in my mind about what are we doing? What are we considering to do? What's in common with, for example, gene drives and carbon dioxide removal and solar geoengineering? So I wrote this academic paper 
where I call these things earth system interventions. Maybe there's a better phrase. I like it. It, It's a placeholder. And I said, (laughs) well, what's the definition? They're large scale and they're intentional and they're intentionally large scale. But I initially had a third criterion and that was technology. And reviewers and commenters at presentations said, well, what's technology? We've always had technology. And then I said, no, I, I mean high technology. Well, what's high technology? Uh, it's, it's new technology. And I found that that line didn't hold up. So my paper looked at a few examples from the past, things like more most recently, nitrogen cycle management, as you say, in under a white sky, half the fixed nitrogen in the world comes from human processes. Intentional extinction, there's this worm in the Americas that's gradually being intentionally made extinct by introducing large number of sterile males. But even going further back, I'm here in the Netherlands where we created land. And you're in America where the Native Americans practice large-scale landscape burning. And after all, fire is a technology. So is there a difference that matters between these past examples and what's being proposed now? Is it a continuum or is there a, a qualitative gap that we're about to cross? I think that's a really good question. And you certainly can find, as you say, sort of analogies, right? And, you know, this whole question of when, you know, if we go back to a a very traumatic, you know, moment for um, the world's flora and fauna was when humans started to move around the world. You know, that was a big, a big deal. And we got these megafauna extinctions in Australia, in (laughs) in North America, in South America. I mean, that was huge. And people have done calculations of how long it took basically for our cows and pigs to equal the biomass of the megafauna that we did in, you know, in Paleolithic times. So, you know, you, you, I think a strong art case can be made that, you know, humans have been at this project of of altering the world and then altering the world to accommodate their alterations uh, for quite a long time. But there's a good line in, um, have you ever read J.R. McNeil, Something New Under the Sun? I, I really recommend it. It's a it's an environmental history of the 20th century. And he's an environmental historian. Um, and it's, it's a good book. Anyway, uh, and he says, you know, sometimes differences in quantity can become differences in quality. I'm not sure I'm saying it exactly right. But, you know, when we talk about the great acceleration after World War II, we're not talking about, okay, it wasn't true that, you know, we've been burning fossil fuels for a long time. We've been producing pesticides for a long time. The Haber-Bosch process dates from 1913. You know, you can go on and on. But once you start ramping those things up, and once you start ramping up population and consumption, changes in scale can become, I think, changes in quality. And that's really what we're talking about. I think it's not, you know, we've been breeding plants for a long time as genetically engineering them, you know, plant biologists would say, well, you know, you could get this, you could have gotten some of these things. And a lot of gene editing now is taking this really interesting path whereby you can find these genes in plants that are just not turned on. You can upregulate them, you know, and not count it as gene edited. That's sort of the frontier, right? We're going to have these gene edited crops that do not qualify as gene edited. That's sort of going to be the gold standard now. And is that true? Yes, it could have happened. It didn't happen without us, but it could have happened. And so I think it's going, it is very hard to draw that line. And we can argue about it for a long time, but the 
questions at hand are, are pretty urgent. And I think we have to decide what we want to do, not necessarily on the basis of whether it has any analog in the past, because the fact is we have passed into a no analog moment. And we, I think, kind of have to acknowledge that. I'm glad you brought that up because I think a thought I've been having kind of reading your book and you know, thinking about geoengineering, which I work on as well, is you know, when, when people are confronted with a new technology, a new proposal, often they deploy the trump card of saying, ah, there'll be unknown unknowns and claims of hubris. I think you just hit on something there, which I, I kind of resonate with me, which is I feel there's a, there's a divide between quantitative interventions and qualitatively new ones. Um, although you're, 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 I think you're right in pointing out that when your quantitative intervention becomes bigger than the natural source of nitrogen, you're really in a, a new world. So it is qualitative there. I was wondering about that example, because I think we can see some interventions where we can really expect crazy things to happen. So, you know, you introduce a novel chemical to the environment. In a way, we shouldn't have been that surprised that CFCs, which have no negative consequences and are perfectly lovely at ground level, were going to interact with something. All chemicals interact with various things and causes outcomes. And on the biological side, we've got these, you know, you introduce a new species and it was a bit naive to assume that they would do what we wanted them to do, like eat the pest we wanted them to rather than rather than not. In terms of that, you know, this divide between a quantitative intervention and a qualitative one, I think maybe it kind of speaks a bit or it rings with the example that you've kind of got as your totemic one. Your book's titled Under a White Sky, which is to do with the effect of the, ha- the increased haziness would expect with stratospheric aerosol engineering. Now, I guess in a way it seems really dramatic and new, but it is a quantitative intervention. It's a percentage reduction in coming sunlight. It's, uh, it isn't novel in the sense that volcanic eruptions have done it. It seems in the models to reduce the overall magnitude of climate change. Is that a divide that, we, that is helpful here, this quantitative versus qualitative one? And how do you think about the uncertainties around bullet engineering? I have to confess, I never exactly thought about it in those terms, but I think, I think it's an interesting one. And as, as you're also indicating, you know, we often, I think that there are human technologies that are, you know, simply have no analog in the natural world, right? Like a computer chip. I don't think we can say, well, that, you know, was nature based, (laughs) but most of our interventions in the, in geology and in biogeochemical cycles, you know, obviously do have some analogy or precedent or relationship to the natural world, because that's exactly what we're talking about, right? You know, fixing nitrogen. Well, some organisms figured out how to do that, you know, a couple billion years ago. And, you know, we're just playing off that, you could argue. But so I think I think it's hard to draw that line. And it, but it is an interesting one. And potentially, um, you know, gene drive, gene drive exists all around us. You know, we're, we have probably plenty of driving genes ourselves. But does that mean that attaching it to some gene that it's synthetic gene even potentially is just an extension of that natural process. Really interesting questions in terms of the risks that come when you take on, you know, yourselves, the task of re-engineering some of those systems. So for example, as you say, with, with geo solar geoengineering, obviously the analog is in volcanoes. That's presumably where, you know, where the idea came from, but the risks, the risk of volcanic eruptions are pretty high and the risks of taking that on and, you know, sort of long term level are obviously also very high. But I hope that the book, you know, makes clear that we've already embarked 
One of the problems that we have, and maybe this is another interesting, useful way to, to think about it, and it's what many of the scientists pointed out to me is intentional versus unintentional. So we are unintentionally geoengineering. Every time I drive my car, I'm re-engineering the atmosphere. I just said I have no intention of doing that. And we've already done that. And there's no taking that back. And then the question comes, okay, are there different obligations? And, you know, this is a conversation I had David Keith, and I think it's an interesting one, and he made the point, we do have different obligations once we take something on intentionally. You know, is that true? Some people will even argue maybe that's not true, right? Our intention maybe doesn't matter. So all of these are are interesting questions and profound questions. I am not dismissing them at all. I'm not sure they will guide us because I don't know what's guiding us right now. We are just seem completely incapable, you know, we can have this conversation, but what impact that's going to have on political events and the whole vast machinery of the world, which is cranking out CO2 at an astonishing rate, among other things, and novel chemicals and novel pesticides that have been inadequately tested for their impacts. That's just a system that's already in place. We certainly treat conscious interventions differently from unconscious ones, but is that really even ethically justified? I'm not sure. That final point you you raised there speaks to this question. I guess a question I've had, and I don't know the answer to at all, is there seems to be two visions of the future, this kind of limitarian, for want of a better word, you know, there are limits to growth, there are limits to our impacts, unless we radically overhaul everything, we'll have some disaster, and a kind of a eco-modernist or cornucopian idea that no matter what, we'll come up with new technologies and solve our problems, because many of the problems of the past have been dwarfed by other developments and were solved. It, there's this constant tension. Do you see that process slowing down and calming down in the future or continuing to accelerate and scale up? Under White's was precisely attempt without, you know, naming names or calling people out, because I think there are a lot of well-intentioned people on both sides, but to say, I, I don't agree with either side here. I think that, I guess, I, definitely my heart is with the libertarians. I don't believe that we're solving these problems without seriously changing the way that we live and our consumption patterns, certainly not for the rest of the species on Earth. You know, there's just a limited amount of resources on planet Earth. There's a limited amount of sunlight. Actually, people talk about, you know, well, there's enough to power the planet, this solar power. Yeah, but plants would also like some of that that solar energy. For example, our crops could use some of it too. Anyway, but to say that both of those strategies are they don't jibe with the actual situation that we're in, which the actual situation that we're in is that we have a lot of people on planet Earth who are living, you know, in terrible poverty still and who feel justifiably that they should have a better standard of living. And I completely agree with them. And if you really crunch the numbers, you know, what are the available energy sources? What are the available land resources they lead you pretty quickly to the notion that, you know, we in the West simply cannot consume the way we are now. It's simply grossly inequitable and the planet cannot survive. I I do believe there are limits that if everyone lived the way Europeans and Americans lived, we would already see global catastrophe. And we are seeing one of the reasons that we are seeing these limits being approached very rapidly is because China, which was way behind the US and and Europe in terms of consumption, is catching up now. And that has ballooned. So if I could say one of the things that's really changed since I got on this beat, and if you read my first book, Field Notes from Catastrophe, 
I talk about global emissions, they, you know, they were like, I think, 7 billion tons a year at that point, roughly. And then they very quickly shot up right as I was writing that book, China overtook the US and kept on going. And you now they're 10 billion. And no one really anticipated that. So that was a big change and not a happy one. But the techno utopianists who, you know, suggest, well, maybe we should just geoengineer for the hell of it because it's a cool thing to do and why not do it? I find that also a very scary and thought process. And I don't think it's a, it's a healthy one. So I think that we are unconsciously already relying on technologies like carbon dioxide removal that we don't know if they exist. So we've already banking on a lot of technologies to save us, but it's not clear they will. And I think that is just where we are. How's that? As a journalist, I am kind of much more interested in where we actually are than where we theoretically could be. (laughs) Focusing on climate change and biodiversity can be a bit depressing, I suppose. Mm, You think so? What in this space or in this world gives you hope and optimism? Well, I'm not terribly optimistic right now, and that is part of the problem. But I guess if anything does give me you know, hope. I think that people are very clever. We're very clever. We've gotten ourselves out of some pretty nasty jams in the past. And so I do think human resilience and brains, I still do hope that we're rational enough and self-interested enough on some level to get our act together before we guarantee really, really disastrous consequences for future generations. And that's sort of the best I can say at this point. Elizabeth Colbert, thanks for joining us on Challenging Climate. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Challenging Climate. Our music is by Peter Dalchuk, and our website is challengingclimate.org, where you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links and references. If you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it on social media to help us grow this podcast.